Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. We're in our series, Cultivate. We're coming to the end of this. Let me just grab the little clicker. We're coming to the end of it just next week. We'll finish before our Easter weekend, and then we're a brand new series coming up for you. Um, but this morning, I want to continue on it. I, for one, have really thoroughly enjoyed this. I've enjoyed um, going deep into this parable. I suppose you could call it the, the parable of parables, really. Remember, Jesus seemed to be suggesting that there was some kind of spiritual insight um, gained from this parable that would unlock the understanding of other parables. We talked about that away at the beginning. And so this parable is telling us something about how we receive the kingdom, how we hear the words of Jesus authentically. How does that happen? Because many would hear the words of Jesus, but only some would really hear them, would really hear them authentically. And this is what this parable is teaching us because we've come to know that the seed is good. We know that. And the seed is laden with the power of resurrection. And if the seed of the gospel is the kingdom of God, then um, we basically what the parable is telling us is if the conditions are right, then the power of the seed can be trusted 100%. Now, the, uh, but the effect of that seed, the effect of it has... Um, is, is totally dependent on the receptivity of the hearer. And so that's what we've been uh, expounding over the last number of weeks, all right? And so we explored um, three soils. We explored, explored the path where the birds of the air come and steal, and we see the enemy working at a cross-purpose to God here, just stealing away. We looked at the rocky ground um, where the testing and persecution, which seems to come, gets too much, and people... Um, pack it in. And then we looked at the thorny ground, which seems to refer to cares and riches and pleasures, which drive us to security apart from God, and um, they eventually choke the life of God out from us. Now, today we're going to talk about the good soil, so let's remind ourselves what the Bible says about this fourth soil that we've been unpacking a little bit. Rick has been talking about it as well. Um, and, and whenever you, you, you turn to Matthew's gospel, we've been looking at Mark 4. We're going to look at both Matthew and Luke today. But Matthew says, still other seed fell in good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. And then on down in verse 23, the interpretation of that, he says, the seed falling in good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands that this is the one who produces a crop yielding 60 or 30, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Interesting there, the little phrase, I bolded it, um, that Matthew focuses on the fact that this good soil is connected to someone who understands it, which is interesting, isn't it? Um, Dr. Luke, when he's describing this type of soil, he puts it this way. I love this one. He says, but the seed on good soil stands for those um, with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. And so what I want to do here, I want to talk to you about this. I want to talk to you, what sort of a person is this? 
this person who has a noble and good heart, a hearer of the word who perseveres, retains it and perseveres. Now, though Jesus was um, schooling the uh, disciples in the art of uncompromising patience, really, he was teaching them about patience. He was saying it's really important that we can keep going. Actually, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, that enduring patience is a long obedience in the same direction. I kind of like that little phrase, a long obedience. Now, what I want to do, I want to take about 15, 20 minutes or so and the time we've left, and I want to talk to you. I want to sort of outline a little bit of the Apostle Paul's life, because I think I can talk to you a little bit about somebody with a noble heart, somebody with a good heart, somebody who retained it and persevered. And I'm going to do that by reading a couple of passages just to focus you. And the first one is the first seven verses of 2 Timothy 1. And Paul, of course, is the writer. This is one of his personal epistles. He's writing it to this young pastor called Timothy who pastored the church at Ephesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, that's always Paul's little trademark. If you're a studier of the Bible, he doesn't, he doesn't refer to him as Jesus Christ. He always refers to him as Christ Jesus. That's his little trademark. All right, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now also lives in you. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So he calls him in verse two, my dear son, and then he sees this gift that he imparted into him by the laying on of his own hands. For the Spirit of God give, um, give us does not the Spirit God give us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self discipline. And then the first three verses of um, the next chapter, two Timothy two, you then my son. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in the suffering like a good soldier of Jesus, of Christ Jesus. Now the story of Acts 14, uh, where this will come to light in a moment or two, uh, we find the Apostle Paul in the city of Iconium and uh, he's doing ministry. And the Jews in Iconium didn't really like Paul or his ministry, so they attempted to stone him. And in verse 6 of chapter 14, you'll find Paul fleeing 60 miles, actually, to the city of Lystra and Derbe. And he flees 60 miles to escape death from these um, Jew haters. And um, but the problem was they traveled, these haters of Paul actually traveled the 60 miles after him. They followed him and they took him out of the city. Acts 14, 19 tells us um, they came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Sometimes when you analyze Paul's ministry with the natural eye, it doesn't look like it's that successful. Um, 
It's definitely not what we would think success is, all right? I've preached some bad sermons in my time, but I've never got stoned for one yet, but um, this could be the first. Um, but uh, as a matter of fact, when you widen the lens and when you step back and look at the New Testament, you begin to realize that it's maybe not what we would say is success to the natural eye. The whole movement at times looks like a failed movement. It looks like um, this is not catching on. It's not really working. It's marked with failure and pain. And one would have to conclude that the New Testament church is messy. I hope you realize that. It's a messy place. People getting left out of communion. People getting drunk around the Lord's table in Corinth. Church full of immorality. A man and a son sleeping with the same woman in the church at Corinth. John the Baptist gets beheaded. James in Acts 12 gets killed with the sword. John gets boiled in oil, and then when that didn't kill him, exiled to an island. All the other disciples outside of John martyred for their faith. And today, it doesn't look much better at times. You look at the political idolatry. You think of the, uh, the greed. You think of the inability to engage with justice issues that Nicola and Dixie have just talked to us about. Even now, um, people come into church and they're people who don't look like us or dress like us and they don't vote the same as us. And um, all of this begins to bring stress about, doesn't it? And here's my point. As soon as we get people into the church, <laughs> the church becomes messy. And the reason is we're all dealing with our own stuff. And you can't really leave it at home. Sure you can't. You can, you can dress and put your aftershave and your perfume on and you can look well and smell well, but we've all got stuff. And when we come together, we're a messy bunch. We're a messy bunch, all right? As a matter of fact, sometimes I think there's been a, a bit of a, a, a come to church and everything will be perfect. And it's almost like an expectation. It's a bit like our calling card. But I was thinking about this this week and I began to think that sometimes the church is a little bit like this. The church is a little bit of a mess. And people actually end up a little bit messy. And, um, and, and so what happens is, what happens is we... We, we get this mess, and all of us in some shape or form are, are walking through a mess. And, um, and as I say, we can dress it up the best we can, but the problem is, the problem is catching the fish is one thing, getting it cleaned out is another entirely, and sometimes that can take. And that's what I love about Paul, because um, Lystra didn't go well for him. Lystra was a mess. But you want to know what he'd done the very next day after he was stoned to within an inch of his life? The very next day, here's what he'd done. He went back into the city. It says he went back into the city to strengthen the people. See the little bit bold at the bottom? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What the Bible, what the New Testament is telling us, that there's going to be mess that we're going to deal with stuff, that life isn't simple, that life, things will come that will make your life look like a bit of a mess. 
But Paul gets up and he goes back into the city. He goes back in, and I love this about him. Do you hear that? He's beaten to within an inch of death. He goes back in to strengthen their souls. How did he do it? By encouraging them to continue in their faith. In other words, by speaking over them. And he's modeling for us that even in the midst of failure, there is a demand to be faithful. Even in the midst of failure, there's a demand to be faithful. He went back. He went back knowing that these people wanted him dead. He went back knowing that once he went in, he might never leave again. He went back to speak life because Paul believed that the strength of the soul was not a luxury but a necessity. And uh, in fact, he was more concerned about the strength of their bodies than he was about the breath in his own body. That's the sort of guy he was. And what he teaches us is that faithfulness in the midst of failure can prove to be fruitful. Now, you're not going to hear that preached on too often. That faithfulness in the midst of failure can prove to be fruitful. Because, you see, even in the midst of mess, sometimes there can be fruit. And actually, what happened to Paul... What happened was he went back into the city, and as he went back into the city where things hadn't really worked out, um, he found a young man called Timothy. We just read about him. He calls him his son in the faith. And so what it teaches us that even in the mess, even in the mess, if we look hard enough, we can find fruit. Even in the mess, we can find fruit. And this is where he finds this young man, Timothy. And, um, and, and, and so if you continue to walk through it, I can guarantee you, you will find fruit. And fruit that will shape your life. Fruit that will define your destiny. And we know that Second Timothy, the, la- the second little passage that I wrote to you, is Paul's final book. He's writing this at the final stages of his life. He knows he's now in Rome. He's been to Spain. He's back in Rome. And he knows his life is short. He's under the um, captive hand of a madman called Nero. And uh, he knows that his, he's down to days, not weeks. And so he writes to young Timothy, and he calls up the fruit in his life. That's what people do when they come to the end of their life. I have been around far too many deathbeds. I've watched far too many people slip out into the world. I've been with people who've been quite compassmentous right to the end. I've never heard anybody yet ask for their bank balance or park my car outside so I can get a look at it. I might do that, you know, me and me in cars. But um, um, I, what, what they do is uh, get my family, get, get my friends, get, get the people who have proved to be fruitful in my life, get, get the people around me who I, I, I haven't been able to live without. This is what Paul's doing. I mean, he's writing to this young man, Timothy, at the end of his day. He's saying, now, Timothy, you need to remember what I told you. And what you need to do is you need to go and you need to tramp through the mess. And, and, and you need to find some fruit of your own. You need to, I think I just walked on an apple there. But anyway, um, you need to find some fruit for yourself. You need to find, you need to tell what I've told you to faithful man. 
and faithful women who in, in turn will walk through the mess of their life and will find fruit and will pass on what I've passed on to you. And it's continuing in that frame. I love this. The, the message version, Peterson puts it like this. He says, they retrace their steps to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, putting muscle and sinew in the lives of the disciples. I wasn't really familiar with sinew, so I googled. Um, and sinew is what connects the muscle to bone. And the muscles are responsible for every single movement in our bodies. And you see, Paul risks his life to go back so that he could put muscle in the lives of the believers, muscle that would help them move forward, muscle that would help them find fruit amongst the mess of their lives. That's what strengthening a soul does, you see. That's what speaking life does. It gives us the ability to keep doing what God has called us to do when things are a mess, when things aren't going the way you thought they would go. That's what strengthening does. It gives us courage to go on just a little bit longer. It revives that which was once paralyzed and debilitated because you see, Paul knew they, these people were in danger of giving up. He knew this. He knew that the enemy was working real hard to distract them from going forward to their purpose. He knew it, so he went back, even in the face of death, to strengthen and encourage them so that they could make a church. That's the mission. That's the mission. We are called to be soul strengtheners. That's our mission, our job. We're called to give our lives for the purpose of putting muscle into the lives of others. So whose soul can you start putting muscle on? Who can you start investing in? Or who can you let invest in you? Can you imagine what the church would look like if everybody in the church became a soul strengthener? We would change the world, let alone the city. The Christian life was never meant to be done alone. Never. We know this in theory, but some of us in this room struggle to actually implement that truth in our lives. And so it's so easy to live life isolated and think we're doing okay when we actually aren't. And um, we were created for community. We were created for to be seen, to be loved, to be encouraged by one another. And that means if we're not living that way, and then we're actually not functioning to our full capacity, and we're sadly missing out. Maureen and I are heading a team to Israel, only five places left, by the way. If you're thinking of going, there's five places left. But um, we're heading out, and one of the things that we'll do, we'll go to the Dead Sea. It's the most incredible place to go in, and can't sink, you just float. It's this salty, salty sea that has all the inlets and no outlet. It just makes it dead. Nothing can live in it because it's all about ticking in. It's all about getting, getting, getting. And so what we do is we have these over-knowledgeable Christians who can tell you about everything, who have an opinion about everything plus, but they're no outlet. They never, they never sow into somebody else. And, and then what happens is it becomes stagnant. And you see, I, I believe that every Christian needs a Paul and needs a Timothy and needs a Barnabas. Every believer, every single person. I, 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 this, this stage probably couldn't hold the people who have been in that first line for me, people that I've looked up to my whole life. My mom, for one, who's at home with the Lord, and many, many, many others. I've always sought out mentors. Still do to this day. 
seek out people who I aspire to be like, people who I think are ahead of me in the faith, people who are ahead of me in the game that I can learn from and glean from. And you need somebody, you need mentee, you need, you need a Timothy, you need to, that's why Nicola's calling for volunteers. You need somebody that you can sow into. You need somebody that you can give into our kids' work, our youth work. We, we need to be sowing into. And this isn't just in church life. This isn't, many of you are doing this as nurses and everything else in your, in your workplace where you're sowing into your employees, your employer. And, and, and this works right across the board. I'm not just talking about church. And all of us need a Barnabas. All, all of us need somebody that can come and put a, an arm around you and say, hey, notice you, I, I, you're just out of tune at the minute. Is everything okay? Somebody that you can be really honest with, knowing that they're not going to tell everybody. They're not going to stick it in the newspaper and tell everybody about it. And, and all, the, all of these people function in a different way. They serve the same purpose. One vital thing all of these people do is they strengthen our soul. When you have these people in your life, you're, and, and, and I, so I'm saying it again, we all need a Paul, we all need a Timothy, and we all need a Barnabas, and contrary to popular belief, can I tell you, it's actually not optional, it's essential. If you want to grow, you've got to have these in your life, and I think you should spend some time this afternoon journaling about who these might be, and maybe even what they've meant to you in the past really important. And if you're currently lacking in any of these areas, then spend some time praying for provision that God would give you eyes to see who in your life could possibly step in and fill these roles. And so I'm saying all that to say this, that all of us need to be what I call 4G believers. We're always looking for 4G. No, now there's 5G. But our 4Gs, we all, we're all obliged to serve in the gospel. We're all supposed to grow. We're all supposed to gather people around us to love on and love with. And we're all supposed to give of ourselves into the kingdom. And if we get these four G's working in our life, then something begins to happen that even running through the mess, we might find a little bit more fruit. That even in the midst of the mess, something happens that we begin to find fruit because we're faithful even in the midst of failure or what might seem like failure. I finished by telling you a story of this guy, George Smith. He was born in the 1700s, early 1700s. He was a Moravian and he was sent out of Hernot, which was a prayer movement back then, sailed for South Africa in the 4th of December, 1736, landed in Table Bay on the 9th of July, 1737. He was 26 years old. He was sent out by the Dutch Reformed Church. And uh, he, they had a presence there, but they'd made no effort to evangelize the indigenous tribes. And so Smith was the first um, genuine missionary in that area. In September that year, he established himself near the Sonderend River where he met a group of Kehokai, which was a tribe, like Indian tribe, in that area. And they were led by a guy called Afriko. And Afriko would become one of his core converts. But in uh, 1738, he moved to a place called Banzaluf, which was known as the Valley of Baboons. 
And, um, and he moved there with 11 men, 12 women, four children, and um, on the 23rd of April, and he established what became the first mission station in South Africa. And uh, in that mission station, um, Smits built himself a house, planted a vegetable garden, some fruit trees. He was an apprentice butcher, so he did an odd bit of butchering for the neighboring farmers. But the Kahoki built their usual huts, this tribe, uh, where the women collected their wild plant food and the men hunted wildlife, tended to the livestock. And Smith read the Dutch Bible to these Kahoki people every day taught them to read and write, to plant and sow, and for seven years worked with them, taught them, preached Jesus, taught them the scriptures. Hard, hard work. On one occasion, he wrote this in his journal. He says, it was as if the devil would not release their souls due to unbelief. It was, um, he persisted. And eventually, there were five who came to understand the message he was preaching, put their faith in Jesus Christ. Seven years he saw five converts in seven years. He began to suffer persecution from the Dutch Reformed Church because he actually went to baptize these five people and they blew their top and they kicked him out of the church. And uh, so Smith left um, South Africa in 19, uh, 1744 with a sad heart and he died in 1785 thinking he'd failed these people. Five believers in seven years died a sad man. No missionaries were allowed to enter that part of South Africa for another 50 years. And in 1792, almost 50 years after Smith left his unfinished task, three Moravian missionaries were again allowed to enter South Africa. And they expected, they didn't expect to find any traces of Smith's work at all, um, but they found his ruined home. And they traced the outline of his garden and uh, his orchard and found a flourishing pear tree that he had planted. And they asked the Kyoki people if they'd remembered him the half a century before. And to they were surprised, they were pointed to an old hut where this old lady lived in, a, in an old hut. And they went to this old hut, and this lady, now blind, they said, do you remember George Smith? This old lady says, George Smith led me to Jesus and baptized me and gave me a new name, Magdalena. Then she fumbled in the corner of her hut and she pulled out a couple of sheepskins and she disclosed a leather bag and inside was the Dutch New Testament that Smith had given her. And uh, they asked her if she could read it and she pointed to her granddaughter. And, um, and she told them this story. She says, her mother, who is now gone, who's now died, and her daughter, her granddaughter, um, have been teaching the tribes the Bible she says, I've been doing it for 50 years from he left. And, um, and since that day when he left, there are now over 200 missionaries, Moravian missionaries across South Africa. You see, the word of God was flourishing because the seed of the gospel had borne fruit because a good and noble heart had retained the seed and persevered. And what he thought was failure, and what he thought was a mess. Fifty years on, he didn't realize, he died not realizing that hundreds of missionaries had now passed through um, the borders of South Africa. And can I say this to you this morning? Even in a mess, even in a mess, if the conditions are right, you can always trust 
the seed. His word never returns void, ever. The Valley of Baboons is now referred to as Glendale Hall. This is it. The Valley of Grace. And um, this is the actual area where Smith established his mission base. Became, hundreds of years later, after he died, it became a place where thousands of slaves would flee, flee to for safety after slavery had been abolished. Slaves fled to the Valley of Grace. Another 150 years, when you hear this, another 150 years after that again, Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela became the president and he named his presidential home Glendon Hall, the Valley of Grace. Imagine the president names his home after the work of a missionary who in what he thought was failure planted a seed which resulted in thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to faith. If the conditions are right, you can always trust the seed. My mum used to say all the time, son, whenever the return was brought to the king, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. We're always looking for results, aren't we? She used to say to me, it's not well done, good and prosperous servant. It's well done, good and faithful servant. And she used to say to me, the rewards, son, are given out for faithfulness. The rewards are given out for faithfulness. So Davy and Rosemary, you stay faithful in serving the kids of our wee land. Stuart, you stay faithful as a businessman in our community. Stay faithful, folks, because we have something to offer. Karen, stay faithful as you look after your mom. Might feel like a mess, but there's fruit. Mark, stay faithful as a good employee that works hard that probably when you leave, they'll have to get two to replace you. That's a good testimony. Serve, bear the fruit, because in the mess, if the conditions are right, you can always trust the seed. Let's bow our heads. If you've never asked Jesus into your life, I want to say to you, if your heart's right, you can trust the seed. And uh, the seed is sown this morning. And if you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please, 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 don't leave the building, but come and talk to us afterwards. Father, we seal this with your blessing. We pray to bless it to our hearts and speak to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.